0: It's Disraeli Smith, and welcome to another edition of the GPPR podcast. Today, we have Liz Sidoti. She is the head of U.S. communication for BP, former Associated Press National Political Editor. Uh, We talk about uh, uncertainty in business, uh, the role of women and uh, the uncertain times uh, with several allegations uh, and treatment of women uh, going on today, as well as uh, public policy and how business intersects with policy Uh, and uncertainty there, along with communications as well. We hope you enjoy. Um, So we're just going to jump right in. Sure. Uh, First things first, Georgetown or Ohio University? Which is better?
1: Oh, this is so unfair. So We told you we'd keep the questions easy. Right, but keep in mind, right, that, like, I mean, we're talking 20 years difference, right? So as a kid, Ohio University, as an adult, Georgetown.
0: That's such a diplomatic question. Right? <laughs> such a di- We've asked all the fellows this question. And you give us this uh, much diplomatic Inside, Inside answer. the Beltway answer. Right, inside yeah. the Beltway answer. I've
1: been here a long time. I'm a creature of the swamp. I was just told by a student a minute ago. I, that's probably right. Creature
0: of the swamp. <laughs> okay. What makes you think, I mean, obviously you've been around for a while. Your career shows yeah. that. Do you yes. really think you're a creature of the swamp?
1: No. Actually, it's quite the opposite. So um, when I was a journalist at the Associated Press, my favorite part of the job, and frankly, the part of the job that I miss the most, there's not a lot that I miss, was um, what I used to do as a journalist, which is grab a backpack, get in my car, drive all over the United States to get a sense of what real America thought. Because I come from a place of real America. I come from Ohio. Right. You know, we, we um, it's a, it's, a, as you know, swing state. Um, I come from a family that kind of goes right down the middle. We're a bunch of pragmatists. We don't ascribe to being right or left at all. And that's who I am too. So, so, um, so I think I always brought a unique perspective or I like to think that I brought a unique perspective to my political reporting because I made a concerted effort to get out of Washington, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I was, I, this is where my job was, but it's not where my home is and it's not where my people are, right? My people are the cross section of Americans. Um, I used to use my family as a focus group. You know, they were a great focus group because they would, they would be like, are you all you in Washington, you don't, know, you don't know what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw that in this last election that not enough journalists get out of Washington. Yep. So I actually think I'm not a creature of the swamp. I think it's actually the reverse. I, I do sort of fall into the tendencies of groupthink, which I think when you're in Washington, mm-hmm. it's really easy to do unless you're getting out, um, which is why I think having a strong home base is important.
2: Well, that's great. And, you know, one of, I think one of the things that a lot of, you know, a lot of students are thinking about is really just the polarization and how that impacts, you know, the ability of our government to function and Congress to work together and, um, and agencies to work mm-hmm. with Congress. So sort of talk a little bit about, you know, what you think the impact of, of polar- polarization is and sort of this us versus them you know, mentality. Um, and, you know, what do we need to, you know, what do you know, sort of future generations um, need to think about, um, or even just McCourt students who are thinking about, you know, entering into politics or to the business or nonprofit sector um, to sort of pull, pull that back, pull that polarization back.
1: Yeah, so I it's a really good question. I think it's really hard. I've been a kind of a one trick punny as I talk about this stuff for the last few years to the point where I used to go on Chuck Todd before he was at Meet the Press. He was on MSNBC. Right. Um. Um.
0: Some Daily Show or something. Uh, yeah. You, talk, I forget daily, what it was called. Daily yeah. Rundown. That's yeah, Daily was. Rundown. Right. Daily. So I was a
1: regular on there, and he used to say to me like, "Sudhodh, you're you, like, can't you say anything else? Because what I talked about was like." the vocal far right and the far left and how tired I was about hearing about them. And mm-hmm. the only way to have real progress is to get the pragmatists together and break through that polarization. So that was four plus years ago that I used to say that. And mm-hmm. I literally, every time I got, he's like, okay, seriously, we get it. You're a centrist. You're right down the middle. You're like for progress. You're for pragmatism. You're for moving it forward. the the situation's only worsened in right. four years. Mm-hmm. Um, and you have small major or small minorities on very small minorities, but very vocal, very passionate, um, on either end of the spectrum that are drowning out everyone else because everyone else, I used to call it, I wrote many a story about the mushy middle, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And the mushy middle is focused on how is my daily life going? Right. Right. And they don't feel passionate about politics. And so they don't raise their voice and, and the system has created a situation where um, that, um, that dynamic is perpetuated. It per- kind of continues to be perpetuated um, because you now have the internet, right? Where we are um, more likely to go talk to people who think like us. You have publications that have sprung up that are highly polarized and play off of that anger and fear. Mm-hmm. Um, so what do we do to break it? I think what I have seen at Georgetown this semester is exactly what we need to do in a broader scope. Mm-hmm. Um, what I've been fascinated by, and it's, it's just it sort of gives me hope. I mean, I've always been a um, contrarian and a skeptic, and I found myself becoming a cynic about these things, mm-hmm. and about politics and about the world around us. And then I stepped foot on Georgetown, and it's not an overstatement to say that you all have helped me kind of get back to a place of like, okay, this is a temporary moment we're in, right? Mm -hmm. Because what's been fascinating is the Georgetown experience of students come from different walks of lives, have different views, and through discussion groups or through classroom conversations or anything, you all listen to each other. There is a dialogue that's going on here Where you respect the fact that people bring different viewpoints to the table, and you all are listening to those different viewpoints and saying, I just had a student in here earlier today saying, I grew up in a really conservative family, and I'm a Republican, and I walk into Georgetown, and I'm having these conversations where my mind is blown because, you know, she went to the Clinton, um, Clinton 25, she was like, I never even thought of things this way right but she was open to the other side she may not have agreed mm-hmm. with it so how do how do we break that polarization i think it's this next generation of students of um voters of americans who are coming up through the ranks and saying like you know what i'm go- I'm going to seek out the other side so that i can have a better understanding of the world around me and and that gives me hope how do we solve it i think we need more of that um can it ever be solved i don't know
2: well, I think what I just want to sort of follow up on that with another question, which is going back to right what you said about dialogue and you know, being able to have a civil di- dialogue and bringing people together. So between sort of media fragmentation and the rapid what's required now uh, with rapid response because of social media, um, sort of what impact does that have and how has that shifted your work, um, both as sort of a
1: journalist and, um, and in your work now in business? So um, I have a love-hate relationship with social media. When I was a journalist, I hated it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I personally only used it um, as I thought it was an important promotion tool, right? So if we wrote a good story, you know, you amplify that story through social media. Um, I thought it contributed what I talked about earlier as a journalist, groupthink, Mm -hmm. right? Like. I was writing for real Americans, right? I was writing for people all across the U.S. And, and across the globe, right? As as the Associated Press, um, they weren't on Twitter every day, right? Right? Mm-hmm. This is a Beltway thing, right? Right? One could argue it's also an elitist thing, right? That um, or or different industries, right? Maybe Hollywood, you know, Hollywood sets up their Twitter accounts, and so they they all talk to each other, and politics all talks to each other, and and you know, Silicon Valley all talks to each other and so. stuff, um. As a communications practitioner, I view social media in a different way because I think it is more and more important given the fragmentation, given the many diverse sources of information, fake or real, that people have to choose from, that corporations or entities or organizations really need to try to cut through that clutter and tell their own story, Mm -hmm. right? And do it in a way where we are segmenting audiences and directing specific messages and stories to those audiences in social media. Um, digital media is a really powerful way to reach your audience with a specific story. So, um, it doesn't really answer the question about the polarization piece, but, but it's my different viewpoint, you know, as a journalist and as a communication practitioner, I think you have to be in the game. Um, because if you don't tell your own story, Social media allows the critics to rise up and fill that vacuum and mm-hmm. to brand you before you have a chance to brand yourself. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. I want to circle back to yeah. the, the point you made about businesses needing to, you know, push out communications themselves. You yeah. know, in, in a sense, that's like micro targeting on a, from a campaign, you know, and that scene kind of echoes the business, you know, playing more of a policy role in, you know, 2017, you know, with various right. issues. Mm-hmm. You know, where the business community has been actively engaged. You know, why is that? Why is business just trying to learn from politics and play the political game, you know, versus kind of staying in their lane of business?
1: Yeah, so it's a great question. And frankly, this is what we've been talking about all semester here. Um, the world has changed so greatly that the confluence of um, digital media, social media, the platforms that are available for shareholders to speak out directly when they have a challenge, mm. problem mm, yeah. with something that, something that the leadership of a company is doing.
0: galvanize the votes like the um, PNG guy quietly won somehow.
1: There you go, right? Like shareholder revolts, consumers have a problem with products or have an experience, I mean, look at United, yeah. right? Where mm-hmm. things are captured on video, right? So consumers have a platform, mm-hmm. okay? Um, the media often takes its clues about what's a story from what's happening online, right? Something goes viral. And the next thing you know, today's show in the orange room is talking about it, right? Right. So the media environment has changed. So the stakes for companies are much larger, right? You don't have a choice anymore. You have to be in the conversation. You have to be in the game. So, you know, what I think of as, I think, traditional corporate communications models, if you are selling soap or if you're selling cereal, okay. But for companies that are engaged in kind of, um, in, or in, the companies that are lifestyle brands or critical like highly regulat- regulated brands really need to be kind of throwing out that traditional corporate communications model and thinking of themselves as a reputation management um, company, mm-hmm. right? That the rep, the brand is the vote or the brand is the political candidate, mm-hmm. the consumers and the state, the shareholders are your voters, mm-hmm. right? And they can take your candidacy or they can hold it up. So the reputation is just as important to you selling your product, right? And, and if I, I look at reputation as an insurance policy. If your reputation is, you protect your reputation, you maintain your reputation, you defend your reputation so that you can do business. If Mm -hmm. you're not doing that, it can be much harder to do business if you have a crisis.
0: Right. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point when you think of crises and and crisis management, and that Mm -hmm. is the the game of politics. And if you look at you know, our current lands that escape. you know, we have a, a White House and a Congress that seemingly cannot get themselves out of man-made crises, mm-hmm. for lack of mm-hmm. a better term. Um, you know, just today they passed, you know, a version of tax reform in the House. You know, the Senate bill is, uh, who knows, Uh, you know, they're going to have to reconcile these bills. You have trying to bring in different avenues. You have a business community who is getting a tax cut, so they're quietly supportive of it. But at the same time, you have that in-depth push of consumers and shareholders who are going to be impacted, you know, with this bill. You know, how do you see business, you know, and think of companies and corporations in this new world? you know, trying to play that, that line of, I want to support what my customers are, are doing, i.e. DACA, and we're going to support immigration reform versus I'm going to act in the best interest of my bottom line.
1: So look, I think everything is driven by the bottom line, but companies need to think broader than that, mm-hmm. right? So you use DACA as a great example. Um, the other thing that has changed is the values-based consumer So Mm -hmm. millennials in particular are, are demanding. I had one CEO say to me recently, they're demanding everything. I'm like, yeah, they are (laughs) right. Millennials are the customers of the, of the now and of the future for many of these companies and millennials choose their brands. We know this based on research, based on their values. They want their companies to be, um, in line with their values, right? And frankly, like when I grew up in my generation, like I was in college and I was eating off the dollar menu at, you know, uh, Burger King and Wendy's and I didn't have the luxury to be able to choose my brand based on value, the values, shared values. But this generation does and um, has been clear that they'll pay a premium for a company that aligns with their values. Mm-hmm. So now, you, so these companies are being forced to get in the policy sphere on things like DACA, even if they don't want to, because what happens, right? Their consumers are demanding that they speak out on climate change, on DACA. Um, and so it, it goes back to the bottom line. Hmm. Those are your customers of tomorrow, right? You gotta keep those customers happy because if not, they're not gonna be with you in 20 years. Right. So to your, you asked about the bottom line, it's all about the bottom line, it's all about the money. Um, Many of them don't want to be in these policy. They don't want to take a position on particularly on these cultural issues. They don't want to take a position on this, but they understand that their consumer base could be eroded if they don't. Now they also, by weighing in, they're going to put off part of their consumer base and we know that. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Odds are it's not the consumer base of tomorrow. They're going to put off it's the Consumer base of today. Right. And so they're gambling, right? Two bad choices. They don't want to get involved in it either. So what is the mm-hmm. um, what what's the least detrimental position for them to take? It's interesting, right? Yeah. Typically, corporations engage in policy issues when there was a direct in- taxes, that's easy, right? Corporation, you can see the bottom line effect on whether or not the border adjusted tax is involved or corporate tax rate is high or low. You can see that, right? Mm-hmm. That's a dollar figure, mm-hmm. right? Now what you're talking about is the attitude of your future, not just your future customers, but in many cases, your employees who already work there, right? Or the partners you have in different corporations or within different segments of of your industry. So it's complex and, you know, there's no good answer, but it all goes back to the bottom line.
2: Well, I think following, sort of following that through just in terms of, you know, future trends and next generation. Um, you know, one of the things I think that is sort of on the forefront of our minds is sort of the impact of automation on the jobs of tomorrow. Um, and then also globalization on what jobs will be available. And obviously the trend toward, you know, workforce that's based on, you know, skills as opposed to, um, you know, skills and services as opposed to, as opposed to products. Um, so how are big corporations sort of thinking about, you know, what the labor force, what the workforce, you know, is going to look like, you know, down the line? Mm-hmm. Um, um, and also sort of talk about, you know, how, so what that means in terms of engaging in policy, right? You know, making sure that there's policies and resources in place all along the pipeline so that you have the workforce that you need for the
1: future. Right. So, so it's fascinating to me that no matter what industry you're in right now, Everyone is casting themselves as a technology company. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Have you noticed that? Yeah. Whether whether you're in finance, technology company, we're a technology company. Energy, we're a technology company. Healthcare, we're a technology company, right? So so that to me signals, um, kind of the type of worker they're looking for, right? They're not only adjusting to this new disruptive reality where you know globalization. Here stay. Right? <laughs> it is, it, it, right? We're not going to put the genie back in the bottle. Um, so, so they're casting themselves as a technology company, I think as a nod to reality, but also as a signal to their workforces of needing highly trained, skilled professionals. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think that's what they're looking for. Um, I'm amazed at this whole um, focus on data. And questions of privacy, Mm -hmm. regardless of whether it's it's not a Silicon Valley issue, this is an energy issue and it's a healthcare issue and it's a technology issue. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think you know the workforce of tomorrow, companies are sort of um, projecting what they expect it to be as they look at their messaging. It's part recruitment tool, I think, and a part and not reality. So highly skilled technology background. And also when you think of the millennials now, workforce of tomorrow, and the generation, even younger, what's that next generation? I don't know. Who knows, I right? Know <laughs> Is there an idea? Can't should, try... we make up, should we make up our own name, right? I, I lost track a long time ago. Yeah, But, <laughs> but, but I mean, these, like, it, it kills me. Some of the undergrads who come in here, I'm like, oh my God, you guys are like...
0: Like, born in '95. Space Jam wasn't even out. <laughs> totally, right? Jam. I have
2: never lived without having you know their their phone be a computer. Right.
1: <laughs> right. So workforce of tomorrow, man I mean that's it's all technology based, right? right? Yeah. Like agile working environments, we're not going to be talking about that anymore because that's like I mean look at WeWork. Mhm. Right. That's an example of like you know, the workforce of tomorrow. You know, I think it's going to be interesting on the cultural side of things. You're seeing a shift in um, what I think was triggered by the Harvey Weinstein conversation of acceptable workplace behavior, mm-hmm. and but not, not, it's moved from a sec, sexual harassment conversation to just just general. Great story in the, um, the Wall Street Journal yesterday on on bullying in the workforce mm-hmm. and bosses who bully. I yes. did see that. And it's fantastic, and so so the conversation is changing, and I think that um, the companies who are seeing that are. And are and are already adapting are the ones that are really going to understand how you know how do we position for the future and how do we get the the right type of workforce and by the way it's not just technical skills that are going to matter it's the cultural the cultural maturity um, is also going to matter for a lot of these companies right because it's sort of
2: we're value the the next generations from value based consumers sort of as you said Mm -hmm. but also value based. Workers, workers right they yeah. want they want a, work, a workforce that has a different sort of culture um you know work life balance i think mm. you know the conversations around work life balance are so different um you know so than they, than they used to be and i think that's all related
1: yeah yeah and the companies that don't adapt to that are the ones that are really going to struggle to keep keep up they're they're going to be far behind right so so i, I think the story of millennials as The attitude, the mindset is just different, and the demands are different, and companies need to adapt to that, both on a technological level and on a cultural level. Mm -hmm. And that's hard, particularly for these giant matrixed organizations. You know, like in mom-and-pop startups, it's easier to adapt, right? But your giant, old-school, titanic-sized companies are going to have a hard time. Got it.
2: Um, so i one of the things that we wanted to ask you sort of ask you it sort of uh, ties into just both politics um, and business but both in terms of Congress and in terms of corporate boardrooms, we're still seeing a really significant underrepresentation yeah. of women. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what are, you know, what are corporations like yours doing um, and what do you think needs to happen more broadly um, so that there are sort of more more women um, that are, you know, coming into leadership positions, whether it's in, you know, political positions or, or in business?
1: Yeah, so... Um, I- I'm a huge advocate um, of diversity in the workplace Mm -hmm. and not just diversity of race and gender, but diversity of experience Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and the inherent and kind of unpacking and having conversations about the inherent biases we bring Mm -hmm. um, into the boardroom or into the political conversation and what have you. Um, I think there's no easy answer. I think... um, most companies that i know of have a strong focus on diversity and have uh, really well-meaning goals and targets for how to achieve diversity mm-hmm. um i do think it's hard to have honest conversations about these issues it is uncomfortable and i think um the onus is on for women in the workplace both men and women right to speak up right i think sometimes we think about you know, what to your point, your question, you know, having how do you get more women in the workplace? I, I think we can't look at it as a women's issue. We have to look at it as what's best for business, mm-hmm. um, what's best for companies, what's best for society. And that is um, for, regardless of your gender, to speak up on on these issues that are mm-hmm. important. I think for women, it's, um, it's scary to speak up. And to say, you know, no, I deserve to have a seat at that table, or to call out a man, no, you're mansplaining me. You know, <laughs> I mean, I mean right. that's a real thing because because there are there um there are things that happen every day that I think women just have learned to kind of shrug off, mm-hmm. and um and so and it's hard. I mean, I'm very very outspoken, and even I find myself being like, I probably should have like fought, fought a little harder right Mm -hmm. to get my voice in that conversation Mm -hmm. and yet fighting is hard and it's tiring um but i really do think that the diversity programs and diversity goals are well-meaning um but that it's going to take a real mindset shift on behalf of both genders to sort of say like we're going to make this place um a place where everyone feels welcome Mm -hmm. And that takes a long time. And it mm-hmm. starts with the right policies in place. It starts with understanding work-life balance and understanding what's best for families. Not right. best for women, what's best for families, right? right? right. Parental leave policies yep. instead of maternity leave policies, right? right? Mm-hmm. Like, So it starts with, I think, a understanding of the values of company and uh, values that are put in place and then upheld and... Honest conversations that go with those. So you have to have the policy piece and you have to have the honest conversation. Yeah.
0: Um, And I think as we wrap up, you know, at GPPR, we have themes. And our theme this year is uncertainty. Um, and I think there's a lot. Of- <laughs> appropriate,
2: right? <laughs> Wildly <laughs> appropriate. Oh, yeah. um, you
0: know, we tried to hit the mark. Um, you know, obviously, there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of different things. You know, we talked a little bit about media, you know, fake news and real news or no news and the polarization of news. We talked about, you know, even workplace behavior and culture and, and, and those shifts, mm-hmm. you know, as they come about and how those shifts need mm-hmm. to be you know, evaluated and tackled, you know, not only through Congress, but just general corporations. And then, you know, the role that business is playing, you know, what are your thoughts, you know, in the, the, the next, you know, six, 12 months as we look past, you know, today into midterms, 2020, et cetera, of how we are going to drive through this, uh you know, time of uncertainty and advice you give us uh, as, you know, policymakers who want to, you know, help fix that, uh, you know, the uncertainty we live in today.
1: You're not ending on an easy one, right? Can we we go back to Georgetown or OU, man? Um, (laughs) um, I don't end on easy questions. I always end on good, quality questions. Man, the advice I can give you guys for navigating through this uncertainty. Oh, you know what? This is the advice I'm giving everyone this semester. Read. Seek out real news. Mm -hmm. Make a habit every morning to spend an hour reading so that you can come up with your own ideas, have facts, um, you know, don't believe that there aren't publications that aren't um, reputable and read. <laughs> read and many, not just the headlines, no, right? <laughs> actually read and create a habit through which every day, every morning you're reading Several different sources of information, reputable sources, from different points of view, to give you a well-rounded understanding of what the facts are, and then you decide. I Now I sound like what Fox News, right? Give you the facts, you decide. And I don't well, mean the to. facts are skewed, right? right. right. <laughs> but but no, but the but the point being is, I just don't. Um, how do you get through the uncertainty of today, um, and this uncertainty is going to be around for a while because of the polarization we talked about earlier. Right. You have to make a point to inform yourself, and to have the types of conversations we have here at Georgetown, where different viewpoints in a room, and then, then you can figure out what you believe in, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then you have to calibrate. Okay, how passionate I am? Do I want to speak out on this? Do I want to engage? But I just think, um, I think, educating yourself and getting a habit of reading <laughs> reputable information and news. Um, is really the foundation for how do we break out of the cycle Um, and how do we kind of weather this uncertain period.
2: Well, I think that goes back to what we said at the beginning, just about, you know, being able to have a dialogue, you know, Mm -hmm. whether that's at, you know, the the federal level of our government or, you know, in, you know, in our homes. And if we're just, if each of us are operating on the headlines and the talking points rather than, that's right. You know the, uh, the 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 sort of the facts and that the, the actual got the information, yeah. and we're approaching dialogue in an informed way. Right. You know that it's all
1: connected. Yep.
0: Great. That's a perfect way to end. So, folks, as you listen to this, make sure you read. Yeah. <laughs> read the Associated Press. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. All right. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, Liz, we just want to thank you. Thank okay. you for sitting down with of us. Course. Course. And and talking to the gpr podcast and i uh, hope to see you around soon yeah well,
1: i'm glad to do it thanks so much thanks guys
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the gppr podcast we hope you enjoyed it for more content from the georgetown public policy review check out our website at www.gppreview.com our twitter at gppolicyreview or our facebook GPP Review. thank you